Thank you very much, Jamie. A pleasure to be here again at the Center for Ethics Emerging Scholar Session. I was here for the first um, uh, session, which was in 2019. So I'm very happy to uh, come back in here. And two years ago, when I was a, a PhD student still, I was just presenting some of the literature of uh, data notation and uh, crowdsourcing and all the words that are associated with it, like ghost work, like micro work, and so on. Uh, so I'm happy here to be back with now three years, two years later, with uh, to present some of my research, ongoing research uh, with all of you. So um, today uh, we, I'm going to talk about embeddedness, which is a concept that I'm going to define later. Um, this embeddedness as well uh, for data notation for machine learning. But first, uh, I'm going to talk about what is this data notation? Like where in AI is this data notation happening? Uh, some of you may be familiar with this. This is uh, Kate Crawford's and Bladen Joller's Anatomy, Anatomy of an AI System. Here, what these authors did was to map uh, for the Alexa uh, system, um, all the labor resources and, um, and the uh, infrastructures used to uh, create devices for artificial intelligence, uh, process the data, for the models and then dispose of these devices. And this is a very complex uh, graphic, but on, very briefly to describe it on the left, the line that you go rising up is all the process to create the devices that support artificial intelligence. In the case of the Alexa to create the Echo Dot. And then on the right is the disposal of these devices. So everything originates in the earth with the minerals and then the assemblies and so on until you get the products and then it's disposed and it goes back to the landfills to all the, all, when it, it gets uh, recycled or then disposed uh, back to the earth. And in the middle, you have all that has to do with the data. Uh, from the capturing of data for the Echo Dot, then the, all the internet infrastructures to the servers of the company, in this case, Amazon, and then all the neural networks that are used to train the system and the data sets that are used to train the system. So in all of this big, anatomy and all this thing, um, anatomy of an AI system, what is my research? And what is this talk that I'm, talk I'm going to, where is this talk uh, situated? And it is in here, this little square in here, I'm going to zoom in now. And it's the data preparation and labeling. Uh, so this data preparation and labeling, according to the authors, occur in four different uh, ways through non-human labor, through professionals, unpaid or low paid labor, and then the unrecognized labor of users. And among all of these, this talk is going to be about just these two lines, uh, what they call crowd workers and other services in developing countries. Uh, but here we call it also data annotation. So very briefly, all these data preparation and labeling, where does it, how does it um, interact with the model? So for a machine learning model, you need data to for it to learn and produce an output. And there are three ways that workers uh, are required to train these models. For the data part, many workers are required to create data, to create data sets. So that's a job called data entry that many workers do. Then many uh, paradigms of machine learning, many types of doing machine learning, yeah, rely on um, annotated data sets for the machine to learn. So that process of annotation is actually one of the uh, largest uh, or one of the main ways for workers to, that workers are asked or tasked in these platforms. Uh, data notation is basically labeling uh, images, categorizing images, doing segmentic segmentation of images. I'm going to talk more about this uh, later on. And then for the output, uh, the algorithm will uh, produce an output and then many of the workers are also tasked with the verification of this output and the evaluation of this output. I'm also going to talk about more of these types of data 
uh, in detail later. But first, let's talk about history, just to situate this type of work. Uh, some of you might be familiar with this, is the, the Turk. Uh, it was an automaton that was parading the course of Europe in the late 17, early uh, 18th century. And uh, what this automaton would do would be to play chess and defeat people at chess in these courts. And people were amazed about it. They didn't know how this robot automaton will function, but actually what was happening was that there was a human hidden, concealed inside of the automaton that who would actually um, uh, make all the movements for the automaton. And the automaton will uh, apparently, like where everyone who was not looking at the inside would think that the automaton was moving on its own, but actually there was a human operating from the inside. And that's why the most popular platform uh, that we hear today for data notation and labeling, uh, it's called Amazon Mechanical Turk. That was the evil genius of uh, Jeff Bezos who thought that this platform would do the same. Uh, conceal, invisibilize all the workers that are hidden uh, and actually operating, labeling, annotating, verifying the data sets for machine learning. And people will only see the Turk, would only see the platform and not the human concealed inside. But actually, if you look historically, uh, this type of labor, this type of labor where people are actually paid by the piece, uh, it has existed for centuries. And actually, I was looking at Karl Marx on the capital. He defines many things about how capitalism and labor operates. And there is a passage in Capital where he talks about this type of work, this type of work where you're paid by the piece. And this is a long quote that I'm going to read with you, but uh, you'll see why it's fundamental to see this historical. So this is written in the 19th century and how it still operates today and how this description of labor back in the day uh, still applies for the labor that is used to train artificial intelligence and to verify its outputs. So this is Marx saying, let us consider a little more closely the characteristic pe peculiarities of peace wages. The quality of the labor is here controlled by the work itself, which must be of average perfection if the peace price is to be paid in full. Peace wages become, from this point of view, the most fruitful source of reduction of wages and capitalistic cheating. Peace wages lay the foundation of a modern domestic labor described above, as well as the, a hierarchical organized system of exploitation and oppression. The latter two has two fundamental forms. On the one hand, peace wages facilitate the interposition of parasites between the capitalist and the wage labor, the subletting of labor. The gain of this middleman comes entirely from the difference between the labor price, which the capitalist pays, and the part of that price which they actually allow to reach the labor. On the other hand, peace wage allows the capitalist to make a contract for so much per piece with the head at a price for which the head labor himself undertakes the enlisting and payment of his assistant work people. The exploitation of the laborer by, the cap by capital is here reflected through the exploitation of the laborer by the laborer. So here I have highlighted um, the most important parts of this long, long quotation. And I think the most important, the one that strikes me the most is in the third paragraph, you see middlemen, the middlemen. So the capitalist has need for labor the capitalist pays the middleman and the middleman find the workers. And here is the definition of what we have today as platforms. Platforms as intermediaries in a multi-sided market between different ends, including the clients, the requesters of the labor and the workers. And also you have this hierarchical organized system of oppression and exploitation, as well as reduction of wages for the workers. And the final, these three things I'm going to discuss them today. The final one, I'm going to leave it towards the end of this talk, 
which is the exploitation of the labor by the labor. So as you can see from this quote within the 19th century, peace wage is old, centuries old. And this is an example of peace wage uh, that has been recorded in these photographs. Uh, it's women and children working uh, with garments from their home. Uh, well, the men would go to the factories, the women and children would stay at home working uh, for peace, uh, peace wage uh, from their homes. So you can see here still how old is this division of labor that is also gendered. And here, vulnerable populations, women and children are actually the ones working for this uh, type of work. So to conceptualize uh, commodification, these types of exploitation, I'm using the notions of embeddedness and social reproduction. For today's talk, I'm going to focus on the first one, just embeddedness. But what I want to, what I want, I'm showing this to you is that uh, one of the objectives of my dissertation, my research, is to explore in which ways embeddedness and social reproduction are interrelated. So I'm going to define embeddedness in, in, in a while, but social reproduction is basically the reproduction of society in the terms of social hierarchies, but also reproductive bodies. How, so Bataracha, uh, one of the scholars of social reproduction defines it that uh, labor scholars would usually look at what happens between nine to five in a job office. Social reproduction is what happens between five to nine where the workers live, where they have been educated, what type of services they ask, they have access to, how do they eat and so on. So basically the idea that people uh, exist in bodies, it's an embodied form of labor that needs to be reproduced and taken care of by society and a social structure. So this is social reproduction and then embeddedness actually has two different meanings that can be reconciled uh, in a moment. So first of all, embeddedness uh, is a notion that comes from the thinking of Karl Polanyi and uh, Polanyi, Polanyi actually talks about embeddedness in his work from two different ways, what some authors have defined as soft Polanyi and hard Polanyi. So I'm going to describe them uh, separately and then see how they actually are interrogated. So soft, soft Polanyi, which some others, other authors call networked embeddedness, is the idea that economic activity is always embedded and enmeshed in institutions, economic and non-economic. Basically saying that a market is not only a transaction between one entity and the other, but these entities are embedded in these institutions, economic and non-economic, they're embedded in society. Then some authors have developed this notion further, and there are two, one micro and micro level of this embeddedness. So the micro level was explored by Granovetter's personal embeddedness, the idea that social actors prefer to rely on personal sources and communications that they trust. And societal embeddedness, to look at it from the macro level, the idea that social actors are influenced by the institutional, social, and cultural context in which they are located. Then the second notion is normative embeddedness of what some authors call hard Polanyi. It's about commodification. Uh, so Polanyi thought that labor, land, and money are fictitious commodities, meaning they were not created by the market. Remember that before I said that workers are actually embodied, there is a, they're human beings, human beings that require um, protection, care, that have human rights. So they're fictitious commodities in the sense that if you actually would transact humans purely as commodities, that would be called slavery. So you see that labor, land, and money are fictitious commodities, especially labor in the sense that they're, because they're embodied workers, human beings that are protected by law and by society and have rights. So Polanyi argues that macro level legal, normative and cultural constraints limit this commodification. Uh, and this is tied to power relations in the market and how this, uh, again, normative, cultural and legal constraints uh, 
uh, constrain these powers actually to take uh, hold of the commodification and gain and exploit this, uh, this labor as a commodity. Then this notion was later revealed by economic sociologists. For example, Burnaway uh, argues that economic labor becomes disembedded from society and is a character, when it happens, the character and use value becomes destroyed. So the idea that labor, embodied labor, when commodified, the use value of this labor becomes destroyed. And then again, back to Polanyi, Polanyi would argue that historically we see periods of decommodification and then commodification according to, again, legal, normative and cultural constraints. And for example, right now we're experiencing since the liberal reforms in the 80s, a new uh, era of commodification of labor. And this era has developed until we have today uh, labor platforms, which are extreme way of uh, not an extreme way because you know slavery, but still a, a, one of the extreme ways that we have today of the uh, commodified, uh, sorry, commodified labor. So Wood and colleagues from the Oxford Internet Institute they try to reconcile these two notions, normative and um, uh, network embeddedness, by looking at gig economy and the gig economy and online labor. What they concluded is that network embeddedness is closer to understanding how work gets done, while normative disembeddedness is important to understand the conditions under which the work is done and the risks that it may represent to social reproduction. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to talk about the, difference, the, the, the different ways in which uh, network embeddedness and normative disembeddedness are configured in the case of uh, data notation platforms. So um, now, now let's go to the to the matter here. Like this, this describe my my ongoing field work. So how is data annotation outsourced? Usually, platforms used to different types of outsourcing services. Uh, we're going to focus on one of them. One of them is uh, business process outsourcing. The other one is digital labor platforms. And for today's talk, uh, we're going to focus exclusively on digital labor uh, platforms. Uh, when I started looking at digital labor platforms. Uh, uh, years ago, uh, one of the things that was the most um, difficult to do research uh, was to know where who the workers are, where they are, how can we reach to these workers to uh, ask questions about their uh, working conditions. Um, so far, what we have was this, um, the findings from the GeoNet project, again, from the uh, uh, colleagues from the Oxford Internet Institute, who mapped the availability of online workers for freelancing platforms. So freelancing platforms are, for example, platforms like Upwork and uh, a freelancer where uh, you can uh, pay for services, just transcriptions, designing. So it's it's not quite, some of these platforms provide these um, services of data notation, but it's not quite the same. There are some platforms which are the ones that are uh, the focus of this talk that are exclusively about annotating data for machine learning. So as you can see, uh, this availability of online workers was too broad in scope for the purpose of the research. So I had to conduct research about the web traffic of these uh, on the web traffic of these uh, selected platforms. And my findings are actually very similar to, uh, in some ways to uh, the findings from the GeoNet project. So as you can see from the GeoNet project, most of the workers come from the, from the United States, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and the Philippines. And these are my findings from uh, web traffic from last year. Uh, some of the countries that I previously mentioned are still there on the top, uh, United States, India, Philippines. But here you can see there is a, sharp rise of Venezuela in terms of um, percentage of the population. Now, disclaimer. So this is web traffic. Web traffic doesn't mean the same as not even number of accounts or number of users. 
So I cannot say that these are where the workers come from. This is just where the web traffic of these platforms come from. And I'm saying this because many of the workers that I've been interviewing, they tell me that they use VPNs to access the US market of data notation. The reason is that um, many platforms pay more to US uh, workers. Uh, again, if they would pay the same as, as they pay Venezuelans, I don't think user workers would uh, access this, I mean, would work for these services. So they provide higher wages for American workers. Uh, so many, this, this, this incentivizes many Venezuelans to use VPNs to connect to this, log into this uh, platforms to work for the American market. So that could all in part, maybe, this is an open question, uh, a question that remains unanswered, uh, explain why the percentage of American workers is so high in the world. Another thing that is a limitation of this uh, data that you can see here is that China is not represented. Uh, as you might know, the, in, the Chinese internet is in some ways separate from the rest of the internet. So maybe the measure for Chinese for the Chinese market is not accurate in here. It could have been that many, many more workers are working right now in China, but we can know uh, through this web traffic data notation, um, so through this analysis of web traffic from uh, this marketing services, that this is where the data comes from. But at least you can see there is a increasing, like this, Venezuela here is the second country, the most represented. And by looking at the uh, at my field work, uh, many actually, most of the people that I've interviewed that have been interested in, my, in, in, in answering my, my, my questions are from Venezuela. And why is there is Venezuela, why is then Venezuela so, uh, so much represented here uh, in this, um, in this graphic. So the Venezuelan case is the following. Venezuela, as you may know, is a country in a deep economic, political, and social crisis. And this is, uh, an example of this is the levels of hyperinflation of the country. One of the participants of my research told me that uh, her pension is 1,860,000 bolivars, which is $1 per month. Uh, the inflation rate, you can see from this uh, chart, the inflation rate in 2019, uh, spiked at 350,000%. Last year, the average was 3,000%, which is the highest in the world by a huge margin. The second country, I think, is in around 100%. Uh, so 3,000% is way more than uh, what other countries are experiencing. What this does, according to my participants, is that it creates uh, an informal market tied to the US dollar. So for example, this uh, woman who, she's a retired uh, woman whose pension is now $1 per month, she has to work for the platforms all the time so she can get access to uh, food and services. Uh, for example, a piece of bread can cost a dollar, half a dozen eggs can cost a dollar, a kilogram of rice can be $2. So as you can see, uh, even the most basic uh, types of food that you can access in the market, they're still, uh, the value is still higher than uh, what this wage uh, or the wage of many people uh, in believers is. So they have to, rely on the informal market to do that. Many people tell me they have to start selling things, produce or, like sell other types of services. Uh, and then many people choose these platforms because these platforms provide a low entry, low entry barriers. And it's uh, not a very stable, but still an income in dollars they can rely on every week. And then also we have the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic that has exacerbated these issues, making it, uh, more difficult for people to find uh, sources of income outside of their homes. So by being stuck at their homes, uh, online platforms are uh, becoming uh, one of the most used uh, sources of income for the people I've interviewed and the families and their um, close relations. So there are many platforms out there. There, I, for, 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 the, for the web traffic uh, data set, I surveyed 93 platforms. 
from these 93 platforms, the ones that operate in countries like Venezuela uh, that I've selected uh, are these three, A, B, and C, which I have anonymized. And the reason I decided to focus on these platforms is because these platforms are exclusively specialized, as I said before, on annotation for machine learning algorithms. There is no, no all the tasks are about that, uh, that purpose. So I'm going to describe briefly what, why, what, how different are these platforms. They, have, they are different in terms of the types of tasks and also the applications that can be used from these tasks. So the first one is platform A. The most common tasks that you can see in platform A are annotation of text, images, and videos. Um, so for example, if you have an image, uh, one of the most common examples is, uh, of tasks is an image of a house. There's a photo of a house, and then you have to tag or select every single one of the objects according to predefined categories. So for example, chairs, you have to select what are the chairs in this image for the artificial intelligence to recognize the objects of this image. Another one is 2D image classific classification. So for example, um, they show you images of um, dogs and cats and the worker has to label every image according to the main object of this image. So this is a photo of a dog, this is a photo of a cat and so on. And the final one is 2D semantic segmentation. I'm going to explain this more in detail uh, in the following slide. So the most common applications for these platforms are content moderation. Uh, content moderation in the sense that many workers are training algorithms that recognize hate speech in chats, for example. Another one is natural language process algor processing algorithms. Many workers are tasked to uh, transcribe for uh, NLP algorithms or to uh, input some data to train NLP algorithms. And finally, retail marketing. Many of these retail and marketing companies are using these tasks. For example, um, they went about tagging all the objects in an image. That, have a, that can potentially have a use for retail and marketing purposes as well. Then we have platform B. Uh, platform B is mostly uh, focused on Internet of Things devices and self-driving cars. Like most of the tasks in platform B are for self-driving cars. Uh, here, they also, there are also text and image video notations, 2D image classific classification and segmentation, but especially 3D. Uh, 3D is very important for self-driving cars so that so the machine learning that, I mean, the artificial intelligence that drives these cars can recognize um, 3D objects uh, or objects in a 3D setting. Uh, and again, I'm going to describe this task more in detail. And the final one is what colleagues, uh, um, Paula Turbo and Antonio Casilli from France and their, and, their, and their team called a deep labor platform. It's a platform that is accessed through another platform. So the platform D in this case, uh, recruits the workers and assesses the reliability of the workers. And once they assess this and they approve some workers, they invite these workers to apply for uh, to access platform C. And platform C is an internal platform for a big tech company. So all big tech companies have an annotation platform and all big tech companies use these other services to recruit the workers for themselves. And the, so this, this um, creates a new level of secrecy, a new le level of security for the platforms. Many workers have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And uh, this is a way for these platforms to maintain their, their ongoing projects as secret to uh, the wider public. So this one, uh, this is a big tech company that has a search engine, a very popular search engine. And the task that people, that workers do here is mostly data entry enter data for the search engine. So for example, where are the companies that are situated in this uh, city? So you have to input the addresses and so on. And also, and this is uh, unique for these type of platforms, algorithmic verification. Um, 
for the search engine, so many of the workers see the results of the search engine and they have to evaluate the accuracy and the reliability of the results from the search engine. In many cases, they have to compare the same results of a search engine with that of a competitor search engine and assess which one is better and why to help train on, uh, this search engine. So this is one of the examples of 2D semantic segmentation uh, for self-driving cars. Here you can see an image of a road and workers have to color every single object of this road uh, according to categories. So you can see the red is for pedestrian, uh, blue is for vehicles, uh, green is for trees and so on. And this is the example for 3D image annotation. And this is a, uh, an image, 3D image from a LiDAR scanner, uh, a laser scanner that maps um, uh, the surroundings of a vehicle and the workers have with these cubes that you can see in different colors annotated different objects that are present in this 3D image. So with this context and then reflecting back on the notion of embeddedness that I described before, uh, the research question that I want to answer with my fieldwork for the rest of this talk is the following. How are data notators and their personal networks affected by the commodification of labor by platforms? And remember that this requires uh, to um, use the notions of this embed of embeddedness or this embeddedness from the point of view of hard planning and soft planning, from the point of view of people are present in institutions. Uh, transactions in the market don't happen exclusively between individuals, but these individuals are present in a society uh, with its rules, norms, and institutions. But also the networks are important. People rely on their networks uh, to uh, perform these economic transactions. So to explore this, I'm going to talk first about the economic, the working conditions of the workers, then the networks and their access to uh, public services and other institutional and governmental services. So first the working conditions. And each one of these slides have will be um, will have one of the images of the workplaces of the workers. So working conditions in practice, platforms consider workers as micro entrepreneurs or freelancers or independent contractors or other terms that basically mean that workers are completely on their own. The platform does not take any uh, consideration for their rights or. Uh, uh, or for rights, for example, tied to employment that you can see in the International Labor Organization and the United Nations and so on, like minimum wage, um, uh, protections against child labor and so on. This doesn't exist because workers are considered exclusively as uh, micro-entrepreneurs. Uh, the second thing is that payment is as low as 50 cents of a dollar per hour in, in, one, in one platform that used to uh, pay workers per hour. I'm gonna talk more about this in a, in a second. But also for those who are paid per task, in many instances, workers are paid even less than a US cent per task. How do they pay this? Be workers have to uh, do a thousand tasks so they can be paid like 30 cents, for example. And this is then an example of how wage theft works in this instance. So the next point here is that workers report a reduction in wages and instances of wage theft. So one way of in which wage theft operates in this platform is that Workers have to complete a certain number of tasks to be paid, for example, 30 cents. Uh, so if you complete half of that, so that labor has been given for free to the platform and the platform will not pay you until you finish the entire, um, the entire set of tasks that you're supposed to do. Another way when this happens is that workers are paid every week and after a certain amount of money collected by the platform. Usually it's between $5 or $10, meaning that if you work until you have nine 
dollars and your account gets terminated for any reason, the platform will never pay you for that wage, for that labor that you already performed. So with these low wages and so on, how do platforms do for workers to uh, sign in? So many, again, like many other types of platforms in, in the gig economy or elsewhere, for platforms to become in practice what David Niebuhr and some colleagues from the so-called Amsterdam School of Platform Studies say, they have to, uh, for them to become like infrastructures, they have to create strong network effects. And by that, they have to reduce uh, entry barriers, but also uh, provide incentives for users to access the platform. And for workers, that means higher wages. That means, for example, and this is back to the 50 cents per hour, this platform, one of the four I'm analyzing, they used to have until last week or last week, they used to have a program, especially, especially, especially for Venezuelans, where Venezuelans would sign in just by showing their ID, just to prove that they're from Venezuela, and they would be paid per, per hour, 50, 50 cents per hour. At the beginning, they used to have also bonifications. And at the beginning, there used to be around um, 1,000, a few hundred workers doing this. Then the more when more people relied on this platform, they started reducing the bonifications, then by December, there were around 8,000 workers. And they started not only reducing the bonifications, but also arguing that the workers were stealing uh, time or stealing money from the platform by, for example, keeping the computer on and just not doing the task and, and so on. So they were then uh, starting to fire some people from the program until last week, they decided to completely shut the program down. And now everyone is relying on the on the on the per task payment uh, but then by then the platform has become an infrastructure uh, because as i said many people are relying on this type of work many people are now working full-time for these platforms and then they shift their livelihoods with this platform to the only source of income someone was telling me if i stop working for someone with diabetes was telling me if i stop working for these platforms i would literally die because this is the only form i can pay for my uh, medical expenses. And I'm talking, I'm gonna talk more about the uh, access to healthcare in a moment. So as I mentioned, workers report a reduction in wages and in instances of wage debt. And remember that quote from Karl Marx, we're gonna go back to that quote, but uh, that also speaks to that quote. Some workers are also paid in cryptocurrency or gift cards. So for example, this platform that used to uh, have this program paying per task, they would pay workers through uh, an online wallet from a Mexican company. And what happens is that they would be paid in wallets, dollars, um, or like virtual dollars, not actually dollars, but dollars tied to the wallet. Meaning that when you convert these dollars into actual dollars, there is a commission that the wallet retains. And then the more transactions occur for you to transform this wallet dollars into real dollars and then into believers and then to money that you can use to buy food, for example, then you, all those commissions uh, reduce the income of the workers for the profit of all these intermediaries. And finally, uh, some workers are also paid in cryptocurrency. And again, they have to sell this cryptocurrency um, through many other way, uh, means until they get uh, money they can spend uh, locally. And again, many of the, many, uh, through commissions, a lot of these wages are reduced. And then the worst type of payment that I've uh, observed is gift cards, where workers are paid in gift cards that are usually Amazon gift cards only valid in the United States, meaning that workers have to either sell the gift cards locally at a lower uh, price, 
or buy products in the United States, then ship them to Venezuela and sell them locally again, earning less money from what they've been paid. So this is how the wages actually keep shrinking, shrinking uh, for workers. And finally, because of uh, how the platform is structured, training and evaluation is required for workers. So for example, if a worker wants to do a certain task, um, they have to train for this uh, task then pass some exams and all this time, uh, then other instances that are paid, it's not paid for the workers. Um, other uh, findings about working conditions is that workers feel they're easily replaceable and the platforms stress this by telling workers that they can fi be fired at any time. They don't say fired because they're not employed by the platform. They call it as your account will be terminated, your account will be suspended indefinitely. And this usually happens for most of the people I've been uh, talking to, this happens suddenly without recourse as well. Sometimes there's recourse, but it's very difficult to navigate uh, um, the platform's um, uh, policies to uh, ask for their accounts to be uh, enabled again. And as I said before, all the uh, all the work that you've done has remained unpaid, will remain unpaid. Someone told me that he lost two weeks of wages because his account was terminated and he never knew why. And he, 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 another thing is that many of the workers here, they rely on translators to understand the task because they don't speak English. So then they are asked to the platform if they want to have any recourse or ask any question, they have to e do, e make it, do emails in English, which they cannot do. Uh, so many workers just open another account and work through that account and they lose all the work that's been done uh, with other accounts. Also, many workers suffer from social isolation due to working from their homes and also uh, at, an, at social hours. Someone was telling me that, a young person was telling me that he had to sometimes wake up at 3 a.m. because there were new tasks, like no tasks throughout the day, and the only ones available would come at 3 a.m. So he had to wake up at 3 a.m. to work for the platform or to remain uh, just working from uh, early hours in the morning and then go to bed really early uh, so he could be able to work for the platform because of the clients being located in other countries when they post these tasks. And if they don't, if you don't do the tasks quickly, then other workers will do the tasks and then the, the availability of tasks will be depleted. Uh, also the majority of workers have to work at high speed and then many, many of them work full-time and even full-time, not in a, so many times we say, oh, full-time. So in France, full-time is 35 hours a week. Here in North America, full-time is around 40 something hours per week. Any workers actually work way more than that for the platform. Um, and finally, the last slide I have on working conditions uh, is obviously that workers suffer from alienation. They don't know who their employees are, and the majority don't know what the work is for. And this is crucial in a moment where we talk so much about transparency of AI, uh, be transparent and, and, and tell where the data comes from and what, how quality, what the quality of the data is. So here is our workers who are told to do things, but they don't know what to do. And for an upcoming paper for the ANL Institute that's gonna be published in June, I'll argue that this has then ethical implications because workers are tasked to do things that they're, uh, from their point of view, they're not ethical for them to do. Uh, so in this paper, and this is a short essay, I argue that we also need ethics from below because uh, we talk so much about, oh, we need to, um, talk to those who are most affected by the systems. So these people are the ones that's affected by the systems because they're working for the systems already, but they don't have any say on what they're doing or what they're doing or, or, the, or anything if what they're doing for is actually ethical or not. Uh, then uh, second point here is that a third of the interviewed workers uh, don't pay any taxes on their income. Um, the, other, the other workers didn't 
chose not to answer this question. So a lot of workers are actually not contributing to the economy. And the platforms, of course, are not contributing to the economy where the labor comes from. So obviously, obviously taxation is also part of the employer here, and the employer here is not uh, paying any taxes or contributing to the economy, local economy of these of these countries. And finally, uh, while platforms cut intermediaries, the reputation scores make workers with higher scores outsource their jobs to newcomers. This was something that I recently saw uh, in one of the forums. Someone uh, arguing that someone who was doing re-intermediation of work uh, wasn't paying the, the worker. And this is something that was also observed by colleagues from uh, the digital labor project at, at Oxford, who also saw the same with freelancers. So this is something that uh, was observed in freelancing platforms in Africa and Asia that I've uh, observed that someone has argued about this or commented on this on a on a on a uh, social media post. But this is something that I need to uh, dig more in and like, talk more to workers about this. Then, so this was the part. The, the, the past slides were about working conditions. This is now about reliance on networks. Uh, I mean, when you can see here on the upper right corner so this graph here is a graph of one of the workers i'm collecting uh, network data from the workers this is for example a worker who relies economically from the support of their fa father aunt mother and friend a and then relies on friends b and c and a colleague uh, for support to their work so basically whether this is a worker who's paid in amazon gift cards he relies on friends b and c who live in the united states to buy to receive the products and ship them to his country uh, this is a colombian worker and then colleague uh, helps him sell uh, the products. So what I argue here is that despite the disembedded market, so as you can see, workers are disembedded in the sense that in the hard planning sense in the, that their labor is commodified and that they're considered as or, or like micro-entrepreneurs or freelancers, uh, workers are however embedded in local networks of trust. Many of these workers rely on their family members, on their friends, on their neighbors, for different types of support ranging from emotional support, economic support, domestic labor, and other types of support. Uh, many workers also discovered, uh, participants discovered or recommended the platforms to the networks. That's how they started working and also how they, many of their uh, uh, personal relations are also working for the platforms. And as I said, uh, types of support include emotional, financial, and domestic. And also workers have, uh, organize themselves through social media. And this is on the lower right corner. You can see this is a, a, a Discord group that has a bot that tells the workers when the tasks are being posted. So remember that I said that a worker was waking up at 3 a.m. to do tasks? It's because uh, this, this young worker is part of this group and the bot will tell the worker, wake up, there are tasks available. And so that's why people pay for to be to be like one or two or $3 per month to be part of these groups. And also to receive advice, to receive uh, other types of uh, benefits, and also to contribute to the group, helping others uh, perform tasks or do them in a better way to have a higher income. Now, the present of institutions. And you've been seeing work, many computers so far, and maybe this one uh, that I've shown, this is the second time I've shown this computer, uh, what is this computer? What is this Kanaima computer? So this computer is actually a computer made in Venezuela from money, uh, from uh, taxpayer money. This is uh, from a government company. And this computer was made for school children uh, back in the, in, the, in the days and years where Venezuela was uh, uh, relying on the income from oil. Uh, so they created this uh, publicly funded company to create computers and all these computers, which I'll call the Canaima, uh, 
and this, this, this model is called Kanaima Red Letters. Uh, these were distributed to school children for free. And then when the crisis occurred, uh, many people started selling these computers and there was a, there's a market of these computers in Venezuela. Many of the workers I've interviewed, many, many of them are working with computers that they bought on this market that are Kanaima computers made by the state. So what I'm here, what I'm arguing here is that role of the state was fundamental to create infrastructures that have made Venezuela such a uh, viable country for these platforms to operate. There is internet infrastructure, there are computers there. All this infrastructure was built from public funds. However, because of the economic crisis that the, the, the country is, is uh, suffering right now, uh, this, this infrastructure has become unreliable. So for example, workers, those who are in Venezuela, they have access to electricity, uh, water, uh, not internet, but electricity and water, and these are free. Uh, these are free paid by the state. However, they're very unreliable. Water services, for example, are usually shut and people have access to them a few days per, per week. Many of them don't even have access to water. Uh, and I'm going to talk about uh, my third point here about what they do. And then electricity also comes and goes. Uh, so for example, and, and for the internet, that's a paid service, but still it's also unreliable. So for example, many workers have to wake up very early in the morning, like around 4 a.m to have access to uh, the internet and then work until 10 a.m. when the, the internet slows down because a lot of people are then connected to the internet. Uh, same happens with electricity and that makes the job more difficult for them uh, because without electricity, there's no income. And in many cases, platforms are the only source of income. Uh, so support from the government has also been reduced. They receive, for example, many workers receive a few, so many workers are from, uh, uh, lower income backgrounds. Many of them still receive some subsidies, but it's, for example, subsidies in terms of one, um, one package of food every, every month or a few dollars every, uh, every week, every few weeks. So it's not enough for them. And this is the only type of support they receive. There is no healthcare insurance. They have to pay from their pockets all the expenses of healthcare. Many workers still may prefer not to get sick. If I get sick, I just stay at home. If it's something that really, I really, really need a doctor, I will ask a friend if they know a doctor to come to my house because they don't try not to rely on, on hospitals, public hospitals. The same with education. Many kids are now at home, um, working for, uh, at home, studying from their homes. And what happens is that, remember those images of the kids and women uh, doing garments uh, a century ago? Many workers have told me that they've heard of, they've seen, kids working for these platforms as well. These platforms usually try not for uh, not to be available. I mean, they say they're not available for minors, but what they do, some of these kids, what they do is that they, for example, present the ID of a family member who's an adult, open the account on the name of that family member and just work for the platform. And some people are telling me, hey, I've seen kids as, as little as 12 years old working for these platforms. Uh, so again, this embeddedness of the market allows for the exacerbation of social inequalities. So, my last point here is that community and neighborhood support is essential to manage some common resources. And an example of that is water. Many of the workers who don't have access, reliable access to water, they have pumps, local pumps, uh, regulated by the community as a common resource. And they all regulate these pumps and that's how they have access to water. So in the princess when the state is, is, is diminished in many cases collapsed, uh, these networks expand to the community as well. And these workers then rely on this community and neighborhood support to share and take care of these common resources. So here is the conclusion from Wood et al. study on this embeddedness. They argue that despite labor being embedded within interpersonal networks, it was simultaneously disembedded from the culture and legal norms 
that would limit it, this, this typo there. Uh, and that's also what I've concluded after this part of my presentation is that yes, uh, people depend on their social networks and interpersonal networks that embed in these networks and saying these networks expand towards the communities as well. In the case, for example, of caring for uh, shared resources, but then they're also disembedded from uh, the protection of the state, the protection of the platforms as employers uh, of these of these workers. Uh, so the disembeddedness of this and the commodification of this labor, this embeddedness of this market causes workers to rely even more on their personal networks to be embedded their personal uh, interactions. And let's go back then to this quote from Marx. As you can see, peace wages become from this point of view, the most fruitful source of reductions of wages and capitalistic cheating. So remember how the uh, bonifications were reduced, the wages were reduced, and there was a lot, of, a lot of wage theft on the platforms. Hierarchically organized systems of exploitation and oppression, how the platform as the middleman, the intermediary, uh, uh, relies and organizes these uh, systems of economic exploitation. And then obviously the, the, the job of the middleman here, the platform in, uh, in, in well, Marx calls it interposition of parasites, but how the, the platform here uh, structures the market for the, um, uh, for the income of these platforms and not for the social benefit of these workers. And then the final point, and now I'm entering the final part of my presentation is about future research. Uh, and the final part of Marx was talking, so Marx before talked about domestic labor, but here the exploitation of the labor by the laborer. And here I want to make a point of Polanyi and how Polanyi relies embeddedness to social reproduction. Remember that social reproduction is not the main uh, topic for this talk, but it's still re uh, related. And this is what Polanyi says about uh, social reproduction. Labor power cannot be shoved about used indiscriminately or even left unused without affecting also the human individual who happens to be the bearer of this particular commodity. Remember humans as embodied entities. Uh, in disposing of a man's labor power, the system would inc incidentally dispose of the physical, psychological, and more entity man attached to the tax. So I mean, the idea that labor is a fictitious commodity because it's like human beings, human beings with human rights have to live a dignified life. And this is when social reproduction comes about. Uh, and, and I'm going to describe how I'm going to, uh, for future research, uh, explore social reproduction. Just basically social reproduction, reproduction of uh, inequalities uh, in capitalism is usually started in two ways from the French Bourdieuian perspective of inequalities and the Marxist feminist perspective of um, domestic labor, reproductive labor. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, so my future work here is trying to bring those together and study, for example, the biases in this, uh, not biases, but going beyond biases and talking about injustices and inequalities, social inequalities in this platform. So like one of the questions of my future work is how do the organization and operation of data notation platforms contribute to the reproduction of social inequalities in artificial intelligence? So this is work that I'm currently doing with my colleague, uh, Milagros Michelli from the Weizenbaum Institute. We're looking at these, for example, instructions that instruct workers to, this is what the workers do actually, this instruction is saying, you will see faces of people, you have, to, you have to categorize this according to gender and these genders are male, female. There is an other category, but this is not for other genders. This is if you just don't find a face, uh, there's no face in the box. So you can see our work with Milagros, it says that, argues that these are, these instructions come from worldviews that are then because of the, how the, the labor is, struct, is structured, uh, workers have little agency, and then the worldviews of those who write these instructions are the ones embedded into the data sets. So it's a top-down imposition of worldviews that contributes to these reproductions and inequalities in artificial intelligence. 
and then another one, uh, so this is more tied to the Bourdieu's idea of social reproduction as inequalities. And then the other idea of social reproduction as domestic and, um, and um, uh, reproductive labor tied to uh, networks. So for this research, my question is, how are communities of data annotators and their shared resources configured and organized? And I'm very interested in the example of Bhattacharya that I said that some people uh, who look into labor, they care about what happens between nine to five, like the job at the office. Uh, what social reproduction invites is to look what happens from five to nine, what happens when workers live, who does domestic labor, who takes care of these workers and so on. So this is another ceremony research that I'm, I'm planning to do. And finally, the more applied part of it, the, the part that I would say will uh, uh, make our computer scientists happy is what do we do with this? How do, can we make this better? And there are many ways to do this. this is, there's, no pan, there's no panacea here. There's no way of improving this. But what I want to do and work with other colleagues about is to uh, involve this current idea of evaluation and documentation. This is an example of model card. Uh, one great example of saying, hey, you have your data set, uh, but tell us where this data set comes from. Tell us more details about the, the, the model, uh, why are you gonna use the model for and so on. What I want to do is to improve these data sets and include uh, the workers as well. So the question here is how can we make AI models that are transparent and respectful of human rights and human rights, including those rights of the workers that remember at the beginning, the anatomy of an AI system, how can we make sure that the, that the models, the AI models uh, respect the human rights of these individuals? And I think that there are many ways to address these issues. Uh, an example is, for example, evaluating platforms. This is what the Fair Work Institute is doing. But uh, from my, my personal research, what I want to do is to also work with this uh, documentation uh, initiatives that have been done that don't talk at all about workers. And I want to bring workers as humans with human rights, then require dignified life into these models to make the to make models and AI more transparent and um, also striving for social justice and reducing inequalities in the future. And this is the end of my talk. Thank you very much for your time.